Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be mainly art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast so unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about Uni Leconte's 2009 film, A Brand New Life. It's part of a series that I'm doing about debut feature films by women directors. A Brand New Life is about a nine-year-old girl who is abandoned by her father at an orphanage. It takes place in Seoul, South Korea in 1975, and it is based on LeConte's own life and her own experiences. This is an emotionally powerful film, an emotionally devastating film, because it deals with issues of abandonment, loss, loneliness. It also, I think, puts a spotlight on the plight of women and girls within the orphanage. And um, so this is a film that I've wanted to talk about for a while. I saw it four years ago and it stayed with me. It's that, I think it makes that kind of impression. So I do hope that you'll stick around and you will listen to the episode. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and also access rewards and extras. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd like to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You really make this podcast possible. If financial support isn't an option, consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. This is really important. Ratings and reviews on iTunes especially help the podcast get better placement, and it helps people discover the podcast, which I would really love. And if you write a review on iTunes, I may share it on the podcast. Today, I would like to share a review that somebody left on iTunes, because it's really lovely, and um, I really like it. So one listener wrote on iTunes, quote, I always enjoy listening to Caitlin talk about films on her podcast, whether or not I've actually seen the film under discussion. This is because the podcast provides so much more than just a description or a review. Instead, a film provides the opportunity for her to think through a number of artistic, political, and deeply personal issues. I'm always surprised and delighted by her insights and the connections she makes, and appreciate her willingness to speak from a place of openness and vulnerability. I listen to a number of podcasts, but I prioritize few the way I prioritize her head in films, unquote. That is such a moving review and I appreciate it so much. So if you leave a review, it might end up on the podcast and I would really appreciate it. You can also tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films. You could also send me an encouraging message or just engage with me on social media. I'm on Facebook at Her Head in Films and you can see all of my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. 
Before I get into my full in-depth analysis of the film, uh, sometimes I like to talk about more general things. Um, some of you who are long-time listeners know this. And um, today I did want to talk about a few general things, but they are related to the podcast. I've been going through a really difficult time, and I feel like I say this on every episode. <laughs> um I am someone who struggles with a lot on a daily basis in terms of depression, anxiety, grief. Um, I'm someone who is profoundly broken and shattered as a person. I'm very alone um, and lonely, and I just struggle to survive. I struggle to exist in the world. Um, I'm someone who just feels things very intensely and I'm very sensitive. At the same time, I, I deal with trauma from my past and just difficult things that I've been through. And I'm always open about that as much as I can be on this podcast. Um, it's important to me, you know, some, every now and then I get messages from listeners, um, and sometimes they're very heartfelt and they're very beautiful and um i know this podcast is small but i think that it is having some kind of impact out there in the world um those of you who listen you're all around the world i have listeners of course in the united states but you're also in france you're in japan you're in um australia you're in england you know you're you're in europe um you're everywhere and I care about you and I value you and I do think of those of you who listen regularly you know who feel invested in me you know or, or maybe you look forward to each week's episode I do think of you as friends in a way you know or kindred spirits or you know um, I, I think of you that way yeah you know, I really do and this podcast means so much to me. And um, I, I had a difficult week. I've been having like a difficult few weeks, a difficult few months, um, which is just sort of the norm for me. Um, struggle tends to be my default, really. And, um, and I think those of you who struggle with depression or those of you who feel lonely in the world, or those of you who don't fit into this world, I think you kind of understand what I'm saying. You know, that um, it's just hard maybe for you to be alive at times because of mental illness, or because of trauma, or because you feel very sensitive, or you feel very marginalized. And, um... That's how I myself feel in the world. But I was having a hard week and um, I was just crying and crying so much. Sometimes I cry so much that I can't watch films because my eyes burn, you know. And um, when my eyes hurt, I can't watch films. <laughs> but I had a day where I didn't cry and I was able to watch some films. And immediately, as soon as they started playing, I felt this complete shift in my body. I felt like possessed in some way or, or like some kind of calmness 
or serenity had entered my body when I started to watch films again, and I was able to. And I don't know if I've ever encountered anything like that in my life, like this complete, um, like radiance, I guess, that just suffuses me when I'm watching a film. And it's like, I didn't feel as anxious. I didn't feel as scared. I got involved in the narrative. I got involved in the film. And so for me, that is what cinema is. It, it, it will always be that to me is that thing that I go to, to save my life. It's like my life support at this point. I need, you know, I need food and water and I need love. You know, I need my mother. Um, but I need cinema and I need literature. I've been reading Clarice Lispector a lot lately and she, I know this is not a literature podcast, but if you don't know the Brazilian writer, um, Clarice Lispector, she is just an amazing writer. Every line almost that I read, I'm reading A Breath of Life, um, which is a really um, stunning book, like all of her work is really. And every other line or something, I think to myself, yeah, I understand that. I know that. I feel like she's really articulating things that I feel inside myself. So I need literature, but I equally at this point need cinema. And it didn't used to be that way before maybe 2011 when I got really interested in European art house cinema. And I did a series um, recently about all the films that I um, that made me fall in love with cinema, like The Passion of Joan of Arc and La Chate, and I'll put links to those episodes in the show notes, uh, and so you can check those out if you're interested. But the last, you know, and especially the last few years, cinema has become equal to literature for me in terms of what I need to survive, what I need to sustain myself and my spirit, you know. And, um... This podcast has been, if you hear my dog barking, I apologize. Um, this podcast has just become very important to me because it's a vehicle for me to share my passion. Um, nowadays, because of the way movie theaters are now, a lot of us are not watching cinema in a communal environment. A lot of people are watching films on a computer, you know, in their bedroom or, I mean, that's what I do, you know, I'm in bed with my laptop or with my tablet, and that's how I watch films. I I don't have an art house movie theater where I live in the rural American South, so um, I'm pretty dependent on streaming and on uh, my laptop to watch films. So it's it's a solitary sort of experience now where it didn't used to be that way as much. So I think social media has become a way for people to try to engage in some kind of communal experience with cinema. And I see the podcast as an attempt as well to engage with some kind of community or um, though just those of you who listen. So this podcast has just become very central to my life. And it's very important to me what I am creating and what I'm building with her head in films. And um, I hope to do a website really soon for you uh, 
where I share reviews and recommendations. I'd like to maybe interview um, filmmakers who will talk to me, <laughs> uh, maybe like independent, um, lesser known uh, people. So I have a lot of dreams that I want to do. I really want to explore cinema and dedicate what I can to this art form. And um, the podcast will always be central, though, because there is something very powerful still, I think, about the human voice. You know, it's one thing for you to read a review I might write or a personal essay I might write about a film. Um, and I definitely intend to do that because I watch so many films, um, like a lot. I, I'm I'm not going to say I'm embarrassed, but I've watched 90 films already in 2018, and it's only April. It's the beginning of April. That's what some people watch in a year. So on a daily basis, I'm watching a film, multiple films, um, sometimes short films, but usually feature films. I'm always watching something. And um, when I say my head is in films, I mean it. I'm not lying, you know. I would say I've watched more than 90, actually. I've probably watched 100 at least already this year. So I envision the website as a supplemental place. You know, a place for me to talk about more films, to make recommendations, to, uh, like I said, do interviews maybe, even do book reviews about books that are about film, possibly. So I'm still working it out. I'm still um, working on it. I don't want to share it until it looks really nice and and is just perfect. Um, but I see it as an additional space for me to share my love of cinema even more with you. Because um, I only get to talk about one film a week on the podcast. And I have so many other films that I want to talk about. So um, I'm excited about it. It kind of gives me a purpose. Um, at the same time, I'm really insecure about it. And I feel like, who the hell do I think I am? I, I lack confidence. I get really insecure. I get really scared about sharing my opinions or sharing my writing. I'm just someone who struggles with that. I struggle with confidence. I struggle with believing in myself. I, you know, on a daily basis, I feel like a failure. I feel worthless. I feel like I'm nothing, you know, and that's something that I've felt since I was a child. So I'm really investing in myself through this podcast. I'm in the website that I want to launch. It's I'm putting my money into it. I'm putting my time into it. I'm putting so much work into all of this. Sometimes I question myself. I think, Caitlin, are you going overboard? Are you putting too much of yourself into this, but I have to, I have to do this. I have to try because I'm passionate about cinema and I care about it. And because I go to it when I'm crawling and I think that I can't make it and I can't keep going, I go to these films and they nourish me and they enrich me and they, um, are like a defibrillator. You know, they are my life support. They bring me to life. And I want to keep sharing that as much as I can and, and share more of it. And I got to thinking recently about why, why am I so obsessed with this? 
why has this has this sort of taken over my life her head and films this whole idea you know this whole brand or this whole thing that I'm trying to create um without a lot of resources without any kind of help really I'm just doing this on my own for the most part not that many people even care <laughs> not that many people listen to the podcast or even notice me really um why am I doing this and it I think it comes from my father um those of you who have listened to the podcast for a while my dad died in 2006 and we're coming up on the 12th anniversary of it in May and I'll be doing a special series in May that will be about films and that will be about grief I'm going to be talking about um films that I saw after his death because after he died in 2006 this was like a really unexpected thing I never thought my father would die this came out of the blue it knocked me out and it completely shattered me and it was basically one of the most catastrophic things that could have happened to me and I was only 16 years old when it happened and a lot of what I'm dealing with even 12 years later has its origins in his death the depression the anxiety the mental illness the trauma the grief um, I'm not the same person that I was and I struggle to live without him and I talk about that really openly that you know sometimes I just don't want to be here but um, I keep going because of my mom pretty much but in May um, I'll be talking about this movie theater that I went to where I lived and I got really into cinema after he died like I got into going to the movie theater it was cheap it was only like a dollar to get in and they would get films months and months later so you didn't get to see new releases um, and I saw certain films in that movie theater and I want to talk about them and I want to talk about why I went to the movie theater why I went to cinema when I was grieving and a lot of the films were released in 2006 and they I have very strong memories of them and so I'll be talking more about that in May but we are coming upon 12 years that he's been dead and um, I still really can't accept it or cope with it or deal with it and um, he I and I've been very open that I grew up working class borderline poor um, when I was growing up I'm still working class <laughs> and um still struggle you know financially and stuff like that and um my dad worked like in a warehouse loading trucks like that's what he did he didn't make a lot of money it was a back-breaking job it was physically difficult um, but he did that to support my mom and I and um we were the most important thing to him and he gave me a very good life you know I wouldn't say I wanted for anything but when you look back at your childhood sometimes you realize things that oh we were working class you know you may not have felt deprived or anything like that but you know I I don't have I didn't have regular access to health care and you know and, and stuff like that it's, my life was different I didn't have the things that other kids had and so that's just a reality I still had a decent life and my parents did the best they could and they were working class and I love them and adore them and it's not a judgment on them but 
that was the kind of work he had to do. Now, my dad had a lot to him. He loved music. That was like his really big passion. And, um, he just loved music. He had, he didn't make music. He wasn't a musician, but he appreciated music. He had, um, a den where he had tons of CDs, mainly classic rock, but he listened to all kinds of people from the Carpenters to Glenn Campbell to Earth, Wind and Fire. And, um, my dad loved all kinds of music. And it's like, in my mind, I could have imagined him being like a radio DJ or, um, working at a music store and, you know, he's dead now. And this is hard. (laughs) I think about his life and I think about what he didn't get to do. It's not a judgment on anybody that works in a warehouse and loads trucks. That's not what I'm saying. I don't want you to take this as, oh, I'm looking down on people who do that. But I'm saying that he had so many years on this planet and he never got to take that passion because he was so knowledgeable about music. He never got to do anything with it. He never got to share it with other people in the world. You know, I'm the only one that knew about it. And he totally enriched my life with music, with telling me about Fleetwood Mac and Stevie Nicks and Hart and Joni Mitchell and Simon and Garfunkel and all the great music he brought into my life, you know. And I wonder sometimes, you know, what if he had lived um, to see, like, the blogs and stuff, because he died in 2006, really before social media became this thing, right? I wonder if he would have had a music blog or something like that. And so I wish he could have had an all, some way to share that passion for music with the world, not necessarily as a career, but if maybe he could have had a blog or something like that when, you know, if he had lived long enough to do that. So I guess that's why I'm so like invested in this is because I want to, I just don't want my life to pass me by like that. I just, And I don't think my dad would want me to do that either. You know? He was always really supportive of me. And he was supportive of my writing. And my, um, my dreams. And so, I want to do something. You know? I want to, I want to create this channel to share my passion with other people. So that's why the podcast means so much to me. That's why I'm working so hard on it. It's why I'm giving so much of myself to it. You know, when I'm not working, I'm, (laughs) when I'm not working, you know, my regular job, I am working on this podcast and I'm working And I am watching films. You know, this is what I do. I think about films. I watch films, you know. This is what I'm doing. And um, I'm trying to build something through her head in films. I'm trying to just create something of my own that I can point to and say, look what I've done with my life. Look what I've created. Look what I've contributed, you know. 
I want to have some kind of impact on other people. I want to share my love of film with them. And maybe this podcast does that. And maybe also they can relate to my story and the things that I talk about um, and things that I've been through. And maybe that helps them in some way. So that is why this means so much to me. That's why, you know, if you see me on social media asking you to write a review on iTunes or to do something like that, that's why. It's because I just won't, I want to make this successful. I want to, I want to share this passion. I want to create this. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to be annoying, (laughs) not trying to bug you. I'm just trying to build something and I want you to be a part of it, you know, and I'm grateful for all of you who listen and who care. And I hope that the films that I talk about and what I share with you, I hope that it makes a difference because that's why I'm doing it, you know, and my dad. <clears throat> I don't want to act like my dad's life was a waste. <clears throat> Sorry. That is not what I'm saying. And please don't take that from this. My life, my dad's father, <laughs> my father's life was not a waste just because he didn't, you know, work at a music store, or become a radio DJ. His life was full and he was a full and beautiful person. And he raised me with love and he made me who I am. The The best parts of me are from him and my mom. Now, the worst parts of me, I guess they're mine. <laughs> but um, if there is any goodness in me, it's from him and it's from my mom. Um, they made me feel so loved and safe. And so when he died, all of that was shattered. And that's why it was so devastating is because he was such a wonderful father to me. And um, I am trying to live in a way that honors him and that would make him proud. But um, that's just what I wanted to share that this podcast is um, and her head in films and what I'm trying to create with her head in films is about so many things. And it's connected to so many things, but it's just about um, sharing uh, what cinema means to me and how cinema can be life-saving and comforting and a really beautiful thing in one's life and in my life in particular. And that's what I'm trying to share, you know, but um, I will stop here on that particular (laughs) that particular thing. I'll get myself together. I'll come back and we'll talk about a brand new life. Okay. I have gotten myself together and I'm ready to talk about this film. Sometimes I pick obscure films. Sometimes I pick films that a lot of people do not know about. I would not say that a brand new life is a really well-known film. It was made in 2009. But the reason I chose this film to talk about, first of all, it fits with my series about debut feature films by women. And part of my goal with Her Head in Films is to not only talk about films that you know about, that you've heard about, that 
are out there and well known, sometimes I'd like to guide you to films that you may not be aware of and you may not have heard of. Now, if you're in the United States, you can watch this film for free. It's how I watched it. It is on a website called TubiTV.com and it is on there and you're free to watch it. Um, there's really no spoilers. I, there's nothing big that happens in the film, but I am going to talk about the film in full. If you'd rather see the film first, you can do that. And I will have a full link to the film in the show notes, which will be in the description of this episode. And um, wherever you listen to it, you may see the full show notes or you may see a link that says, here is a link to the full show notes. And that's where you'll see everything that I've mentioned in the entire episode. If I talk about a previous episode and things like that, that will be in the show notes. I've started doing that because I think it's really helpful. So you can see this film for free if you're in the United States. And I would obviously urge you to do it. Um, But I'm well aware as I talk about this film that you probably haven't seen it that it's not a well-known film. But that's okay. Some a popularity is not always an indication of a of the quality of a film. I first saw a brand new life 4 years ago. I saw it in 2014 and I'm talking about it for a lot of reasons. But I'm talking about it really for one particular scene at the end that has haunted me and stayed with me for 4 years now. And so I really wanted to talk about it and that'll come, you know, later on. But, um, sometimes with cinema, a whole film doesn't even necessarily stay with you. No entire film stays with me. It's scenes or there's a mood to it, an atmosphere. There's a feeling about a film that stays with you and it's emotional and it can be really personal And something I've realized recently, I guess it sort of crystallized for me, is what I'm attracted to about a film is emotion. There's got to be some kind of emotional pull to it, some kind of emotional resonance to the film. I don't take to films that are highly intellectual. I don't take to films that lack a certain amount of emotion or are completely cold and detached. Um... That rarely works for me. I usually need some kind of human emotion in the film. It doesn't mean that it has to be like, you know, full of tears and and melodrama the entire time. You know, an example is like the film I talked about last week, Unrelated by Joanna Hogg, which really started my series of debut feature films by women. That is a film where the entire film almost... These The characters are disconnected, they're sort of detached, there is a distance, but there is a scene in that film near the end, and I'm not going to tell you about it here, that is very emotional and that very, that moved me, and that's why I wanted to talk about the film. And it's sort of the same thing with A Brand New Life, and I will put a link to the Joanna Hogg film, Unrelated, and you can listen to it if you would like. But it's sort of the same thing with A Brand New Life. There is an emotion to this film that stayed with me. So it's by uh, the French-Korean director, Uni Leconte. She wrote and she directed the film, and it is an autobiographical film. It's based on her own 
life. Um, this film is set in Seoul, South Korea in 1975. It is about a little girl who is abandoned by her father at an orphanage, um, a, an all girls orphanage. And, um, I'm looking at Wikipedia. It says it was a Catholic orphanage as well, which yeah, it was, um, so that is like the gist of this film. It's about this child. She's, I don't know if we ever get her age necessarily. Okay, she's nine. She's nine years old. I knew she was around the nine or ten year old um, age. So this is about a little girl who is abandoned in an orphanage. And it's just, it's a powerful film. It's, it's about a lot of things, and that's what I'm going to talk about. But, um, <clears throat> but I think it's interesting to note that it is based on LeConte's own experience. And she did an interview with um, IndieWire in 2009, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And um, she talked about some things in relation to the film. She talks about how she was abandoned in a Catholic orphanage and that she was adopted. Um, she was abandoned in a Catholic orphanage and adopted by a French Protestant family. So she's pulling from her own life to a certain extent, you know. Um, she was actually working as a fashion editor while she wrote the script. And a very another important aspect of this film is one of the producers is Lee Chang Dong, who is a really great South Korean um, director. I've talked about one of his films on the podcast. It's called Poetry, um, and it's such a devastating film. Uh, and I've also seen other Lee Chang Dong films, in particular Secret Sunshine. That's another really devastating film. He knows how to like go into emotion. And so it doesn't surprise me that he was a producer on this film. It doesn't surprise me at all. But she says that she met Lee Chang Dong, uh, quote, when he came to Paris for Secret Sunshine's release in France, unquote. So while he was promoting his film Secret Sunshine, he meets Le Comte and he eventually becomes a producer on A Brand New Life. She says that she's influenced a lot by Abbas Kuristami and Satyajit Ray. And this doesn't surprise me at all because um, Kuristami featured children in some of his films, in quite a few of his films. Um, she cites Where is the Friend's House or Where is the Friend's Home? I have an episode about that film uh, because I love it. And um, she talks about Satyajit Ray's The Apu Trilogy. I have an episode about Satyajit Ray's The Apu Trilogy. Um, so it's not um, surprising to me at all that in her film about a child, she is influenced by other directors who have looked at children in cinema. And... Um, the Apu trilogy is obviously about a little boy named Apu, and it follows him throughout his life through three films. And I love Satyajit Ray. I'm a huge, huge fan of his, a huge fan of Apis Kuristami. So I think we could put A Brand New Life in that lineage 
of films about children. And that's what I want to talk about first of all, is how this film is about childhood. And that's partly why I'm talking about it. I've actually talked about quite a few films about children on the podcast. Whether it's Kurostami's Where Is My Friend's House. Um, I talked about another film that Kurostami wrote called Willow and Wind, which is about children. I've talked about the Apu trilogy, which is partly about children in Potter Panchali um, when Apu is a little boy. Um, I've talked about The Secret Garden by Agnieszka Holland, which is about children. So I'm very attracted to films about children. And I think childhood is a profoundly pivotal time in our lives. The first 10 to 15 years of our lives are very formative. They're very important. And people act like we can somehow, like we hit a certain age and that time is over or it doesn't matter. And I would argue that childhood is with us forever. You know, what happened to me losing my father when I was 16? I, I know you probably wouldn't call me a child. You know, I was a teenager, but I was at a very fragile and vulnerable age. And it did something to me. It changed me forever. And it's made it very difficult for me to cope with life. I mean, it's like I was frozen at age 16. There's this very odd contradiction about me that I'm very aware of. In one hand, I'm extremely serious. And I would have, I would describe myself as a very precocious child. I mean, age 10, I was reading Holocaust memoirs. That's how serious I was. I was extremely extremely mature for my age always it's crazy when I think back about how serious I was as a kid and um but at the same time um I'm very juvenile in some ways like I love butterflies and and unicorns and I collect like lip smacker lip balm like and I love Pusheen the cat and like I like all these really like juvenile things like I still feel like I'm a teenager inside my head so I feel sort of emotionally stunted like I'm frozen at age 16 but then in other ways I feel extremely serious and old in terms of my life experiences, a lot of the things that I've been through. Because after my father died, my grandmother died, my uncle died. All this happened within three years. And so a lot happened to me by the time I was 20 years old. And it has set the course of my life in a lot of ways. And I've struggled with it. But then there's this other part of me that's like really juvenile, you know, and like really feels like a teen girl inside still. I don't know how to explain it, but I think childhood can have very lasting wounds for us. And so often films about children are not always watched by children. You know, I think of something like A Brand New Life. I don't necessarily see a 10-year-old watching this film. Or if you think about Kurostami's Where Is My Friend's House, or you think about Potter Panchali, those are not films necessarily where that are for children. There's a very big difference. Something like Agnieszka Holland's The Secret Garden is for children. It's for children and adults. I watched it when I was a child, and it made a big impression on me. And I talk about that in the episode. 
or even something like Dead Poets Society by Peter Weir, which I have an episode about. That's about teen boys, you know, it, it's, but it's still kind of about kids and it's kind of for kids. I think it's sort of, I think it is for kids. It's, it's sort of an inspirational film that's sort of, that's trying to tell kids, you know, think for yourself and make your own path in life and things like that. And I would argue something like Potter Panchali, Where Is My Friend's House, A Brand New Life. I don't know if these are for children, you know. These are films that are especially A Brand New Life that is interested in looking at childhood as a time and looking at what happens to a child. You know, when we are 9 and 10, we are taking things in and we are being affected and influenced and shaped in really um, subtle ways, ways that we may not always understand until much later in our lives. So I get the sense that LeConte is looking back, really, and she's thinking about that time in her life, perhaps, or thinking about this little girl in this particular situation. And, and what's interesting is how you can watch this child, you know, it's a nine-year-old, and yet you can relate to her and you can feel her pain and it sort of resonates with you in an interesting way. Like I'm 28 years old and, and yet I felt a lot for this nine-year-old girl and I, I could connect to her and to what she was going through because all of us have been children. You know, all of us have been in perhaps situations in our childhood where we felt alone or we felt scared or we felt abandoned. And that's a really difficult thing, you know? And um, I think films about children, I don't know if a lot of adults watch them, but I do think that they can be revelatory. I think they can, they can be saying important things, you know, about life. And, um, as adults, I think we should keep that in mind that just because a film is about a child, I mean, think about Louis Malle's, um, Au revoir, Les Enfants, you know, that's about children too, but that is a profoundly moving film. I'd, I'd actually like to do an episode about it. Um, so these films about children, are about so much more than that. And I think that they can bring up things about our own childhood and maybe our own experiences. And they can remind us that those first 10 to 15 years are so formative. They are so, they're like this stamp on us. They brand us in a lot of ways. I don't want to say you can't ever escape your childhood. I'm not saying that. But I think a lot of what we see in adults who are who are in pain, who are broken, who are struggling, possibly with addiction or, or other issues, often it is rooted in their childhood. That a lot of hurting adults were hurting children or who were children who were hurt. And yes, some people can rise above it. Some people are given the resources to deal with it better, but some people are not. You know, and I think we need to look at how those experiences shape us. But, so I want to make the case for watching the film for you, even if you are an adult, you know, and you may not normally watch films about nine-year-olds. There is just something so emotionally powerful about this film. And, you know, I watched it four years ago, but it stayed with me. So our little girl is named Jin Hee. 
And as I said, this is set in Seoul in 1975. The film begins with her father taking her places. He buys her some new clothes. He buys her like a coat. And um, he eventually buys her a cake and things like that. And what ends up happening is that he takes her to an orphanage. And as I was watching the beginning of the film, seeing her with her father, we never see his face. It's a very interesting choice that LeCompte makes by not showing his face. He sort of becomes a blank space in a lot of ways that perhaps you could feel with somebody else in your life if you wanted to. Um, I thought about how crucial our parents are as when we're children. They really are our entire world. And how could they not be? You know, how could they not be? These are These are all we have. This is all we know. And I think that's what makes losing a parent particularly devastating when you're a child. Um, she doesn't lose him to death, but the way I interpret this film and, and the way I'm going to be talking about it, him abandoning her is a kind of death. You know, he is dead to her in a lot of ways. She will never see him again. He might as well be dead because he is completely absent from her life he has completely gone and this is someone apparently something has happened to her biological mother we don't exactly know and she's with her father and we later learn that her father has a new family he has a new wife and a new child and um this could be the reason that he's taking her to the orphanage we don't know exactly so um I see this film as being about loss to a certain extent, the loss of a parent, which obviously resonates with him, with me. And I wrote like a tiny, like one sentence review of this film when I first saw it in 2014 on Mubi, which is a site that I use. I love Mubi. Um, they get a new film every day and that film is only available for 30 days and they have some extraordinary films that they share. And um, I'm not sure if I saw the film through movie or if I saw it through some other website. I don't know. But I wrote after I watched it, I said, for personal reasons, this was an emotionally devastating film for me and one that I will never forget. So I had a very intense visceral reaction to this film when I first saw it. And I think it's because it is about the loss of a parent. It's about a father. Now, my father didn't abandon me, but her father did choose to abandon her and to leave her. And so I think this is a theme that could resonate with a lot of people out there. You may not have been left at an orphanage by your parent, but there are plenty of people who have parents that are not present in their lives, that for whatever reason, the parent has decided to not be part of your life, whether it's a father or a mother. And this can be a devastating experience, especially if you're a child when it happens, though it can be really difficult when you're an adult too, and perhaps you have a parent that doesn't want to be in your life. So um, I think I think that's a really, unfortunately, a common experience. And I think it can make people feel like, what's wrong with me? Why would you leave me? Um it's hard, that feeling of abandonment. And I don't know if I've really talked about that as a theme in any of the films up to now. But this is really a film about abandonment. But it's also about loss.
so she's taken to this orphanage and it's an all-girls orphanage and um she has a really hard time adjusting to this atmosphere to this new environment going from living in a home with her father to I mean can you even imagine just being dumped in this place you don't know any of the people you now you don't even have a room of your own you don't have like a space of your own you're just in this place with all these people you have no privacy or anything um that would be difficult for me personally so she is a child in turmoil she is a child who is completely confused and frightened by what has happened um at one point she goes outside and she like hides in these brambles or she hides in like these um like these bushes or something and she doesn't want to come out and um there's this really heartbreaking scene when she first arrives there it's the middle of the night and she gets up and she sees the these little girls who are really sort of younger than her they're sort of playing these cards i don't know why i keep saying sort of i gotta stop that they remark that she is now one of them and the look on this little girl's face i would i would argue that this little girl um who plays the main role of jen he um she does an extraordinary job her name is kim say ron and she is just amazing in this film as jen he her face throughout the film really conveys a sense of displacement, a sense of heartbreak, a sense of confusion and loneliness. And um, these tears just start to fall down her face when when they say that, when, she's, when they say that she's one of them now. She doesn't understand this. You can tell that she's just dazed by what's happened, that... One minute she's with her father, and then the next she is completely discarded. It's, I don't even know how to put it into words, but there's such a fragility about her performance and a fragility about her character, the character of Jin He. This is a little girl who just is feeling so many emotions inside, and you can tell that she doesn't know how to deal with it and she lashes out at times like most children do she throws food on the floor there's a scene later on where she tears up these dolls she's full of anger too she's not just sad she's not just crying she's angry she's angry about what's happened to her and i don't think we talk enough about women and anger and how you know as little girls especially but even as women we're not allowed to be angry and I find myself lately, and I've talked about this, I think, in previous episodes, I am so angry all the time. And it's not healthy. You know, it's not healthy to be angry all the time or to get so upset about things the way I do. And I know that I shouldn't, but I'm just, I feel helpless. I feel powerless. I feel bitter about my life in comparison to other people's lives and Things that I don't have, things that I can't do, everything that I want to do and I can't. And it's, I get mad because I have to struggle so much all the time. I don't want to struggle. I don't want to live that way every day of my life. 
I want to wake up and I want to be happy and carefree, but I can't be because of what happened to me. Because there are things that happen to you and you cannot go back to who you were before. It's not possible. Something is forever taken away from you. And when my father died, everything was taken away from me. My sense of safety, my entire life, everything I had known was taken away. And that's what Jen He is going through. That Everything she's known, everything she's relied on, everything that made up her life and who she was is gone in an instant. And it wasn't because of some natural disaster. It wasn't, you know, just a twist of fate. It was her father purposely making that decision to leave her and to abandon her. And of course, that um, intent that amplifies the heartbreak, I think. And there's another saint, like, I think what LeConte does a really good job of is showing that turmoil. You know, she, Jin He throws the food on the floor. Later, she, she tears up the dolls. And then there's another scene where she climbs the fence. This, this orphanage is, has a fence around it or a gate. And she climbs it and tries to get out. Now, one of the women who works there opens the gate for her and says, you know, you can leave. Because they obviously know that she's going to come back. And she does come back. And um, she actually goes into the kitchen. Um, if you hear my dog, I apologize. Um, she actually goes back. It's The kitchen is empty at this point. Everybody's gone to bed. And she eats, like, all this rice. Like, she, like that's what she does. She just stuffs her mouth full of rice and you can tell that this child is so lost and that she really is hurting and she doesn't know what to do with it. And I think as children, I think that stays with us as we get older. You know, if you go through certain experiences and you don't have any resources and you don't have any support or any way to cope with your emotions, I think that stays with you to some extent. And maybe sometimes as you get older and you become an adult, you still struggle. You still don't know how to handle it. That's how I feel a lot of the time. She doesn't know what to do. She's just eating this bowl of rice. Like, that's all she can do. And there's just something so, um, I don't know, like human about it. Like, yeah, of course, you would do that. She doesn't know what to do. She just wants her dad back. She just wants her dad to come back and and take her home. And she thinks he's coming back. She doesn't see herself as an orphan. She doesn't see herself that way. She keeps thinking he's going to return and get her. And, um, but that's not going to happen. That's not what happens in this film. Um, she does start to become friends with some of the girls at the orphanage because children, I, I think children at a certain age, you know, probably by the time you're 10 or 11, I think kids around that age, they are kind of adaptable. You know, they they str they can struggle and they can hurt. But I think there's a resilience there, too, when you're that young. It's like, I don't know how to explain it. But I think there is a certain age where it's like, oh, you don't know enough about the world. 
you're, you're just, you're this little kid. And I think you can be a little bit more resilient about it. Like sometimes I wonder if I lost my dad when I was eight or nine, would I have been able to handle it better than when I was 16 and I knew him and we had had conversations, you know, when you're eight or nine, your parent is sort of, you may not know them in the same way. Your relationship to them is not the same. I think when you're older and you know them, that can change it a bit too. But any age, it's devastating. I'm not saying that it's not devastating if you lost your father at eight years old. Sylvia Plath lost her father when she was eight, and it absolutely affected her the rest of her life. And it was a devastating experience for her. So I would never say that. But but Jen, he is able to adapt a bit to the environment. And she becomes friends with a girl named Sookie who's older. Sookie is probably like 11 or 12. And um, this film also does a really good job, I think, of not just talking about Jen He's story, which is, you know, devastating enough, but talking, but showing the, the conditions and, and the realities of the girls in this orphanage in South Korea in the 1970s of how these girls and women did not have a lot of options. They didn't, you know, they were these, any orphanage, any film about an orphanage is about children who are discarded, children who are on the margins, who are forgotten. And um, in particular, when you're talking about women and girls, you know, there is another level of marginalization and oppression there in every culture, you know. And um, these girls don't have a lot of opportunities and they don't have a lot of choices in their life. And the film really shows that there's a girl, um, there's a girl there who is disabled. Her name is Yeshin and she has something wrong with her leg. Um, and she's actually going to be adopted by a family and she's got to be 15 or 16 years old. She's much older than the other girls and she's going to get adopted, but it's not so that she can like be part of a family and be loved. She's basically going to be used as a maid. So she's going to be performing labor in the house and she's going to be the family's maid. And that just made me so sad. And Yeshin's storyline is really, it's heartbreaking. She has a crush on a boy. She gives him a letter, but he obviously rejects her. And, um, she ends up attempting suicide. She's so desperate. Her circumstances are so difficult and dire that she tries to kill herself. She does survive it and she is adopted by that family. And so we know that she's just going to become a maid in a household. And I find that really heartbreaking personally, you know, um, I, I, I imagine that it must be really difficult to be a kid who's in a foster home um, and who never gets adopted. I've thought about it many times before just because, you know, things will come up in the news, you know, different stories and things like that. and Or if you watch a movie or, or whatever and, you know, the subject of, of somebody... Um, you know, who's in foster care a lot of their lives. I think of somebody like Marilyn Monroe. She was, um, you know, her mom uh, 
took her to, you know, different places and she was, ended up being raised by different families and, and different people like that. And she was someone who probably thought of herself sort of as an orphan in some way. And she was someone who was really discarded and who did not have a steady family throughout her life. And that was very devastating for her and very difficult for her to deal with that she never really had that love and that support that I think she always craved in her life that stability too um and of course Marilyn Monroe is a very tragic figure um obviously but um you know you wonder what her life would have been like if she had had that if she had had that family she never knew who her father was so she's someone that sort of grew up that way too. And, and there are so many kids that still grow up that way, whether in an orphanage or in a foster home or, you know, when they turn 18 and they've never had a family, they've never had that support system. And I just can't imagine how painful that must be for them because I've always relied so heavily on my parents especially I don't have much of a family I don't really have a supportive family support system at all I pretty much got like the bottom of the barrel in terms of like uh, relatives and extended family but I had really great parents you know my dad was really wonderful and my mom is a really great mom and I'm so dependent on that I was so dependent on both of my parents and now I'm really dependent on my mother um that I just, I can't imagine the heartbreak that you never had that or, or you did have it and that parent abandoned you or that parent took you somewhere and, and let you go. And I know that that must be really, uh, devastating. The, this film is really about women and girls who have been rejected, cast out, thrown away. They're really the forgotten and the invisible and the marginalized and I'm always drawn to films like that about women like that and I always will be um I think films about marginalized women and and women who are forgotten and silenced and um I think those are really important films and I think this film would fit into that in a certain extent you know um of course not every girl at the orphanage you know has a terrible heartbreaking story um Jenny's friend Suki I'm sorry um gets adopted by a couple the woman has an American accent the man has an Australian accent so I'm not sure if she goes to America or Australia but uh Suki is the one who's like 12 and 11 or 12 and she tries very hard to get adopted she knows exactly what she has to do these girls are smart um they know in a in to a certain extent how to play the game and that's what Suki is trying to do she learns english she tells them she talks to them in english at times she tells them what she wants to do with her life and She's just this very sweet, sweet child, you know, I mean, but she, it seems to me like she knows what to say to try to impress them and to try to get adopted. And it makes me kind of sad that, that these kids are almost like competing with each other. And this is probably what happens, you know, in different places around the world where 
they all want to be adopted. They're not all going to be adopted. So it's like, how do you make yourself stand out? How do you appeal to them? How do you almost in a way brand yourself? You're almost like this product when this couple comes to look at the different kids, you know, and it's like they get really savvy and smart about what to do and how to um, win that couple over um, because they know they don't have a lot of options. They know that they could end up like Yeshin. They could be 16 or 17 and get adopted and have to become a maid somewhere. And basically, it's like slavery in a way. I mean, you almost belong to this family and you have to do whatever they tell you to do. And everything that Sookie does works out. She does get adopted. But I thought she was really savvy. And it made me think about how, you know, that's what a lot of kids in orphanages and, and adoption places probably have to do. At the same time, Jin Hee still is holding out hope that her father is going to come back. Um, she tells the director of the orphanage the address where she used to live she wants them to contact her father and things like that. But when the director does that, he finds out that her father and his new wife and child have moved. So she really, it's over. You know, she really has been abandoned. And that's when she has to face it. She has to accept that that is what has happened. And um, the the orphanage director tells her that she needs to forget the past and that she'll find a new family. And I guess this is obviously the origins of the American title that they've used, A Brand New Life. Um, but what's interesting is um, the way the film ends, we don't see what happens to Jen He once she is adopted. Um, now I'll talk about that in a minute. But throughout the film, um, Jin He is just so within herself and she's very withdrawn and she's always apart from the other girls. She makes friends with them. Her and Sukhi were good friends. This film is really to some extent about female friendship, about friendship between girls and how girls can support each other. They they can be mean to each other at times, but Jin He did have a really nice friendship with Sukhi and they were good friends and, and I think that helped them through that experience of being in the orphanage together. And so if anything, we also get a sense of the way that girls can support each other and be there for one another. At night, the girls play games, they play card games and things like that. And so they can be loving and they can be supportive, even within that really difficult environment. Um, but Jen, he is still just very, she's still just dazed as I said before, like she still cannot really believe what has happened. There's this scene where I think she's in the cafeteria eating and everybody around her is laughing and eating and she just stares into space. You know, I mean, the way Kim Sayron plays Jen He, she conveys that loneliness, that sense of being lost and that sense of longing that Jin He has for her previous life that is gone. It is lost. She can never have it again. And um, it's just, you think of this nine-year-old child having to cope with that. 
You know, it was hard enough when I was 16. It's hard enough when some people are adults and they may lose people or they may go through difficult experiences. But you think of a nine-year-old having to face all that, having to face this new life. I mean, for the film, that brand new life is sort of the orphanage, you know, for much of the film. Having to deal with all these people she doesn't know and and losing her father in a lot of ways and just, that's a lot it's a lot for a nine-year-old and um which is obviously partly why LeCole even did the film to begin with this obviously was a lasting memory for her since it is based on her life this is obviously something that she needed to talk about, that she needed to explore. And through her own personal story, she explores a lot of other things beyond herself. Whether it's the plight of these women and girls in this orphanage and the situation that they find themselves in and the grim reality that they face um, outside the orphanage and even inside of it. And the way she looks at girls helping each other and supporting each other, you know, and the way she looks at loss and loneliness. And um, this is a debut feature film. And I think it's a very powerful one. You know, it's um, I'm glad that she sort of took her own personal experience and used it to look at these other things. To not just look at her own story. But to look at um, the the orphanage and the girls. And, and so many things that she does in this film. And there's a very powerful scene near the end. Where Jen He goes outside into the woods. And she digs. This, she starts digging and at first we don't know what she's doing. We don't know what's going on. And we eventually realize that she's digging a grave and she sits in it. And then she starts to pour the, the earth back on herself and she is burying herself in this hole. At first she does keep her head uncovered and then she puts the dirt over her head too. But then she wipes it off because she can't breathe. And so it's this... It's this very symbolic moment, in a way, of the death that has occurred. And perhaps it's the death of Jin He. It's the death of a part of that child, you know. And she comes out of that grave, I guess, as someone different. As reborn, or in, in some way... And maybe it's when she finally realizes, you know, that her dad's not coming back, that all of that is gone. You know, that a death has occurred, a symbolic death has occurred. And, um, but I think she's also desperate, you know. I don't think she knows how to live with what has happened. And we see that with her with her anger, but also with her sadness, her crying, her lashing out, you know, um, at times. And she doesn't know what to do. You know, she feels very helpless. And as a child, what can she do? She's just stuck. She does get adopted, though. Jin He does get um, adopted by a couple in France. 
and Lacan is French Korean. That's the way she's described online. And um, she's driven out of the orphanage. She's taken to the airport. Um, the couple's actually not there. Um, she has to get on the plane by herself. And um, and before she gets to the airport, um, when she's still at the orphanage, all the little girls gather and they sing to her. They sing like a... They, I think they sing Auld Lang Syne yeah, as she leaves, I think. Um and they're bidding her farewell. And um, I would imagine that she's seen as one of the lucky ones. You know, that she got out of the orphanage. That she gets to have her brand new life, the title, um, as the title indicates, um, in France. And she gets adopted by a couple. But the scene I really want to talk about is when she's on the plane by herself. And this is part of why the film is so powerful. It's part of why the film stayed with me for four years and also why I wanted to talk about it. Um, I mean, I love talking about films about women, by women, you know, films about girls who struggle, girls who feel marginalized and silenced and forgotten. And that's certainly part of why I wanted to talk about this film. But this scene, she's sitting on the airport by herself and... She's thinking back to when she was with her father. And uh, I watched the film last night in preparation for the episode. I rewatched the film and I sobbed again. I thought, you know, it's been four years. I know the scene's coming. I didn't know how I would emotionally react to it. You know, I thought, uh, you know, I've seen it before. It still got to me still got to me I was sobbing but I think I was sobbing not just because of the film because of the film obviously but because of what I've been going through that I've been struggling so much that I'm always struggling to some extent that I'm always I always feel so sensitive and raw and I feel this sense of intensity in myself and um I just it sort of just came to a head I guess and so this scene was somewhat cathartic for me in terms of my crying I just cried and cried over this so she's thinking back to being with her father and he's riding a bicycle and she's on the back and she's holding on to him and her cheek is resting against his back it's resting against the fabric of his coat um and we can hear him breathing and it's just this very quiet moment and she just lays her head on his back ah, i always cry <laughs> um and she you know she presses her cheek against his back and she looks so content like the look on her face is so sweet and it's this little girl with her father and that's what she thinks about. You know, she's sitting on the plane. Ugh. She's on her way to this new life. She doesn't know what to expect. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She's on her way to these people that she doesn't know. And all she has ever known is behind her, is in her past. And I just find it so touching and moving I think moving is more of the word that when she's on that plane the one memory that she thinks about is 
her arms around her father's waist and her head resting against his back. It's this moment of contact, of touch, of being with her father and being in the presence of her father, this man that she loved, this man who was her world and who obviously meant everything to her. You know, when you're that young, when you're nine years old, your parents are your entire world. That's all you know. They are the source of everything. They are the source of love. And it just broke my heart, that scene. Because that's gone. And she's lost it forever. And she'll never rest her cheek against his back, will she? You know. It's over. And that life is gone. And there's just a profound sense of loss for me. But also that scene of her thinking about that. And she looks so happy and whole and content to just have her arms around her father and to rest her head against his back. It's like, and that scene, it's so brief. I didn't even count how many seconds. It wasn't even a minute. We just see them riding on the bike and we just see that close up of her face and we can hear her father breathing. And it's just this quiet, beautiful moment that I'll just never forget that I like carry in myself because I have similar moments with my own father, you know, of things that I remember about him, you know, moments with my dad where we're embracing or, you know, and um, that scene, like, that for me is like, I almost feel like the whole film is building to that scene of of that. And just, it's it's devastating. It's just... Oh, God, I don't even know how to put it into words. Like, if you have lost someone, you know, I think you totally get that scene. But of course, her loss is very different because her father chose to abandon her. And that adds a whole other level of pain to it. I would never compare my experience to this, this little girl's at all. But I am trying to talk about why certain elements of the film move me so deeply. It's because of my own previous experiences with loss and, and things like that. But obviously when a parent chooses to abandon you at an orphanage, that's a whole other level where she perhaps cannot just think of her father in a loving way, but there is... An anger, I would think, at her father, perhaps. I mean, this is not in the film. You know, she's not, we don't think she's angry with her father. But I would imagine when she gets older, there's going to be a lot of complicated emotions about her dad and about what he did. Obviously, that's beyond the purview of this film. The film doesn't go into that. It's, but her feelings and her emotions about her father are going to be very complicated as she gets older. But that scene of her with her dad and that being the thing that she's thinking about and that really I think she's longing for, she's thinking about it because she aches for it. And I think so many of us or all of us ache for the things that we have lost and the people that we have lost, whether they chose to leave us or they were taken from us. 
We do ache for things in our lives that we can't have again. So she goes to the airport in Paris and she meets her parents. And so now her new life will begin. But that's where the film stops. We do not know um, what happened. And really, I think it would have been fascinating if she had made a follow-up film about it. To see what happened to the to Jin Hee. What happens when she gets to Paris? What happens when she meets her family and starts this new life? And um, it almost could have maybe been a Truffaut thing. You know, the way he follows Antoine didn't. Um, Antoine throughout his whole life starting with the 400 blows you know played by Jean-Pierre Léaud you know followed him throughout his entire life as he grew up I think it kind of would have been interesting to see what happens to Jin He once she gets to Paris and adjusts to this new life but we're not given that this is the film that we're given and it is incredibly powerful and it will stay with you. And it made an impression on me. And it's not this overly well-known film, you know. Um, but I I really wanted to talk about it. When I got to thinking about these debut feature films, I could have talked about a lot of films. You know, there's so many great first films by women. But um, this one just had an emotional... <coughs> resonance for me that I really wanted to talk about and it it's about abandonment it's about loneliness it's about loss it's about the the lives of women and girls you know within an orphanage it's about girls who are abandoned and unwanted and marginalized it's about you know female friendship it's about childhood and about how certain experiences impact us and shape us and change us forever and what happens to children matters and what happens to us when we are children matters and you can't just say to let it go you can't just act like people can let it go it actively shapes us it actively affects us on a daily basis things that we have been through in our past and things that we went through as children there is no switch to turn it off there just isn't. And so this film possibly could bring up issues for you. You know, if you can relate to some of the things. It, it Obviously, it does not fit my life completely. And I would never compare my life to a little girl in South Korea in the 1970s. Where she had a very specific reality and a and set of challenges that are in no way similar to me growing up in America. I know. Um... But I just found a lot in this film that I related to and that touched me. And and um, so I obviously recommend watching the film or maybe you watched the film before listening to the episode. But I'm glad I could talk about the film and I wanted to. And even though I'm having a difficult time and I wasn't sure if I could do this episode, I just thought, well, I have to do this episode. And I, I want to talk about these things and I want to talk about this film. And I'm glad that I did. And so I'll stop here because I have said everything. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.